Say again, Paul? I said Jules and I were just meeting and get to know each other a little bit. Oh, that's awesome, man. That's awesome. That's, that's beautiful. But like you haven't changed a bit since the last time I saw you. <laughs> well, I didn't grow a big fucking beard like you did. That is a very impressive piece of face, my friend. <laughs> well, it's, no, it's nowhere near as good as Martin Moore's uh, face garden, but I do try. Good. Looks good on you. I like it. Oh, yeah, yeah. I got a bit of a halfway between Mel Gibson and Saddam Hussein in the folks, we got him. <laughs> Somewhere in the Hemingway ISIS parentheses there. Yeah, good old, good old, uh, good old uh, Daesh look. Uh, I hear that's the new black. America, what is that all about? Dude. I wore this baseball cap the last time we saw each other in 2011. It was, I told you then, uh, it's from a skateboarding store in uh, Coburn Street in Edinburgh. You know what? Fuck you for busting me for not remembering something trivial from nine fucking years ago. Do you have any idea how much pot I've smoked between now and then? Well, if it helps you, there is a picture of me, you, and Babs, and I'm wearing this cap, but it's, it's no biggie. It was a profile picture for a while on Facebook. Oh, God, man. It's been ages since I've seen you, man. You look fucking good. It's been, thank you kindly. It's, it has been ages, and it feels like ages times 10. Your hair's shorter. I remember last time you had quite the... I just cut my, I just cut my pandemic hair. It was way down to about here. You could have been like a Bollywood stunt double why would why would you chop it all off <laughs> you know what i did a podcast with the sklar brothers and they said oh what are you opening up like a dojo <laughs> you going for the steven seagal look they said i could either be a porn director or a or a guy who runs a dojo it's weird how, we how those two things are interchangeable i'm <laughs> <laughs> right in some cases yes uh, well, whereabouts are you? I am in Los Angeles. Okay. Very nice. I'm going to be You're... heading out here in a couple of weeks, and I cannot wait to be back on the West Coast. Well, I hope it's open by the time you get here. <laughs> well, but you're from New York originally, if I remember correctly, from Brooklyn. That is from the Bronx, actually. From the Bronx, my bad. From the Bronx. Okay, well, yeah. now that the friendly banter has been, I, I must do my usual, you know, whoring myself for my brand. Uh, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, I saw just wait. Ladies and gentlemen of Safe Public Candles, the show with no name, peace be upon you, namaste, and all that jazz. We have a specially amazing guest of Paul Provenza. This man needs no bio. And if you don't know who Paul Provenza is, I can tell you he's not a good fella. He's... One, he's a film director, he was a stand-up comedian, he's done various <laughs> projects ranging from the green room, uh, set lists, stand-up comedy without a net, or what was it you said? Like magicians doing actual magic. Yeah, yeah, pretty amazing stuff. Uh, documentary maker of the film The Aristocrats, a film that has gotten many a comedian into hot water if they're next to anyone in earshot that is not a comedian or privy to what The Aristocrats is. 
And I don't know if Jules has done her homework and watched The Aristocrats since I told her that was her. Uh, She's in still, for a dubious treat. If she, she is in for a very, very The Aristocrats treat. Um, Paul. I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, me too. The episode I or watching? I can't say that. It's been a hell of a week. This is like the bright spot of my week. I am super stoked about this. Oh, you're very kind. You were saying, Paul? I was saying I haven't seen my friend safe in, uh, in too, way too long. We were actually, we have had periods of time where we hung out like every day for like months at a time. Like, like a honeymooning couple in Edinburgh. Kind of. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Have you been back, Ed? Last time Obviously I set last time I set foot on the city built on seven dormant volcanoes or extinct, depend what <laughs> study field of geology you're in. Um, twenty fourteen. That was the last time I went and uh was lucky enough to do a couple of uh I think I I did a night at set list. Uh, when you guys were set up at the yurt and Mickey D was hosting, he was doing the rounds of hosting uh -huh. and a mix between Mickey D and uh, Troy Conrad's and other people. Uh, Tom Stade did a lot of, you know, uh, gigs that. Uh -huh. yeah. Yeah. That, was, that was an interesting fringe because, you know, I was actually, that was the only time that, you know, like ever since the eruption of social media, that was like the only time that I was, I found out about the death of a celebrity off social media. I was in the green room of the year. Oh, yeah. With yeah, Babs. yeah, yeah. That was when Rob. And then Brendan Burns comes in and goes, Have you heard what happened? You know, and Babs was like, No, what? Robin Williams is dead. They're saying it's suicide. And he just walked out and Babs and I were just like, and the first thing Babs said to me word for word was something like along the lines of, I remember a time when Robin Williams would come to the comedy store and I would give him $5 for a burger, which is very big considering mm -hmm. Babs is a vegan now, <laughs> but like, <laughs> but I yeah, was like, we, uh, that was that was a huge uh, blow to the comedy industry because I remember seeing his set list on uh, YouTube. Yeah, and he also did the TV series that we did for Sky as well, which was they couldn't believe that we got Robin Williams to do it. It was amazing. But Robin loved the show. And, you know, we both but Babs actually knows him, uh, knew him uh, far longer than I even because I didn't come to L.A. until 1980. She had been here, you know, a handful of years before that. But um, pretty much I have a photograph actually somewhere actually even handy of um, uh, the first time I really spent time with Robin. And we're talking 1980, very shortly after I got here. And, you know, he was such a beautiful cat. He was such a really nice, kind, generous guy. There was no star trip about him. There was no... I'm the greatest comedian. You're just a, just an ordinary comedian. None of that. He couldn't have been more supportive, more generous, more helpful. And um, I mean, I, I called him to do the Aristocrats. I called him to do my book Satiristas. 
I called him about set list. Uh, anything I ever called him about, he always was there for. And uh, in fact, when, uh, when I was trying to get him into the aristocrats, uh, you know, I tried not to break protocol. I would talk to people's agents and managers, especially right. if I had a relationship with the agent or manager. Um, uh, but they always are obstacles to getting comedians to do just fun, goofy, silly things that aren't necessarily good for their career or who knows what, you know. And um, I couldn't get his manager, whose name is David Steinberg, not to be confused with David Steinberg, the comedian, but David Steinberg, the manager, you know, he would just sort of put me off and hem and haw and everything. And then I remember one day calling him and saying, David, please, please, I'm begging you. I said, stay on the call. Just connect Robin. Let me talk to Robin for five minutes, maximum, not a second over. Let me talk to Robin, please. Let a comic talk to a comic about this. And he did. And before I even got the sentence out of my mouth, Robin was like, huh? oh, that sounds fantastic. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'd love to do this. David, set that up. And I mean, that's the kind of guy he was. He was just such a kind, generous. That's the thing that, that I don't know if enough people really um, appreciate. Everybody pretty much appreciates the loss of him as a comedian, as an artist, and as a, a, a cultural icon. But he was just a beautiful, beautiful soul. He was such a good, kind man. Even when he was in his drug phase, he was never one of those cokeheads who, you know, got angry or edgy or, you know, vicious or anything. He was always so lovable and joyful. And, and, and like I said, I mean, compared to him, I always considered myself a nothing. But every time I walked into a room that he was in, he always made a point of welcoming me and treating me with such tremendous respect. And, and for him to do that to me, you know, that's a beautiful guy. He's a beautiful man. So I'm glad we had this little moment to celebrate him as a human being. That was nice. Thank you. No, I, I, I'll tell you one more. Uh, my uh, eidetic memory of IMDb, there's a lovely trivia fact about Robin Williams that he would always make sure that most of the people involved in any film project were homeless or out of work people. I, I, I forget the number, I think it's somewhere between 2000 to 2500 or if ideally majority of like the grips and you know extras and whatever, he would make sure that there was like always a clause in his uh, film contract. Yeah, yeah, I know he always, he was very conscious. Very of, altruistic of, of and very, yeah. yeah of taking the opportunity to help others in some way, shape or form. Like he wouldn't have somebody hired if they weren't competent, but he might have somebody hired if they just got out of rehab and they were having trouble getting back on track or, you know, something like that. He would do that kind of thing all the time. He's just a lovely man. It, it really, that's the real tragedy is that we lost him as a force of good in the world. Yeah, I don't know if you know this about me, but my first introduction to Robin Williams like my first exposure was his film Moscow on the Hudson uh-huh and now I know you know that now, Jules, Jules do you know of this beautiful film she's a millennial forgive her no um basically my movie knowledge is very limited <laughs> I'm educating her I'm educating her but Moscow on the Hudson in a nutshell for our listeners who haven't seen it yet it's basically Robin Williams is a saxophonist in the Moscow circus during the time of the Soviet rule. 
and his friend who is a performing clown wants to defect, but you know, it ends up being Robin Williams who defects and he's in New York and it's a phenomenal film, very cutting edge ahead of its time, broke a lot of culture. But, and I think because he decided to shake a role where he portrayed that literally starting from nothing, leaving everything behind, uh, just dirt poor, you know, and it's a wonderful film, beautiful film, very, it can get you really teary. Yeah, he's very, soul, he's very soulful in it. And he commits. You know, he has speaking, moments, but he gets yeah, really, yeah. Speaking my, Russian. My favorite bit of Robin Williams on film, I think, I personally hmm. think it's his performance on film ever, is a very low budget movie, which was made by his old friend, Bobcat Goldthwait. And it's called World, World's Greatest Dad. And it's really, really a fascinating movie. And his performance in it is so restrained. And I even talked to, uh, to Bobcat about it. And I said, Bob, I, you know, I, you brought some stuff out in Robin in that film that was really, really, really impressive. Like kudos to you for, you know, just as a director working with talent. And he said, that's what his entire focus with Robin was, I don't want a performance. I don't want a performance. And it was beautiful. Uh, and, and in retrospect, it's kind of weird because the movie is about a dad, Robin, with a difficult teenage son hmm. who commits suicide. And he ends up in this position of being the father, getting a lot of attention for this whole thing. And I, I, I can't remember all the details, whether he writes a book or what, somehow he ends up in front of all of this and he kind of feels it, that it's wrong for him to be the guy talking about this because he probably has a lot to do with why his son Gilman's up. It's a fascinating little movie and Robin is just breathtaking. Yeah. Highly recommended to those of you who uh, enjoy Robin's work. Movie again? World's Greatest Dad. It's directed by Bobcat Goldthwait. I'm definitely gonna watch that. That's that's gonna be my my weekend homework. Um, mm -hmm. so Paul, since because like set lists, it's it keeps going. It's it's ongoing. Like I like I know that every other fringe or every other festival, it's going on. And I know it has you're, up until recently. <laughs> up until recently, up until the pandemic said no. Um, what else have you got? going on like because i know you're now based in la so yeah well i've been working on a couple of projects i've been working on one project that i've been working on for we're going on six years now mm -hmm. uh which you no know, there's in show business there's no difference between six years and a million years but i've been working on it for a long time and it deserves that kind of time because it's a fascinating story of, you know, I know you are aware of Doug Stanhope, yes? Doug Stanhope is, of course, by not just my account, by many of the greatest comedians in the world's accounts, he's absolutely one of the, one of the people working at the zenith of the art form, Doug Stanhope. He's fantastic. Jules, check out Doug Stanhope. Anyway. Just type in one Doug Stanhope and nationalism. Friend. <laughs> uh, Doug's, one of Doug's uh, closest friends in the world is another comedian by the name of Andy Andrist, 
And Andy's story is fascinating, but he's also an amazing, an amazing comedian with a lot of demons. So what this documentary is, is actually Andy, with Doug's help, tracks down and confronts his childhood molester on camera. So it's the story of what happened to Andy, how that affected his life, and in fact, his comedy, and even just his career, um, uh, or lack thereof, um, and his decision to go and confront this quote-unquote demon for him, and the process of doing that, and the actual confrontation, and afterwards, there ends up being a legal case uh, that takes place. So the movie is a really fascinating look into a very intimate uh, experience for Andy. But the weird thing about it and why it's ta- why it's so challenging to do is because Andy is so funny and he's turned this experience into comedy over, over time. And um, it actually drove him to confront it. Uh, so it's kind of a story of child abuse, but it's funny. And that's a very challenging line to walk because you don't want to be disrespectful to any of it. But at the same time, Andy's a perfect example of someone who took, uh, um, who took a tragedy and turned it into something positive in his life. And that's not something that you see a lot as a paradigm for victims of sexual trauma or abuse or any of that sort of stuff. Um, so it's a pretty interesting piece and I have no idea what's going to happen with it. I have no idea what kind of traction it'll get or not get. Uh, I, you know, I don't think it'll, um, I don't think it'll get the kind of attention that the aristocrats got. I don't know, but I don't care because it's a fascinating story. And for me as a filmmaker, it's kind of like climbing Mount Everest. I mean, I even I had a conversation with uh, Michael Moore at a festival once and I told him about uh, that I was doing this. And he was like, wow. He goes, whoever can make a comedy about child abuse and make it work is a genius. And I said, I'm gonna hold you to that. I'm gonna do my best. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm laughing so hard over here because what Safe knows, what you don't know is- And what Jules knows about me. <laughs> What you don't right. know. Right. I'll let you cool. speak on that safe. You can mm. you can speak on, on yours. I'll leave that with you. Yeah, but go ahead. But I went through about a decade and a half of just systemic abuse in relationship after relationship. Now never at the hands of my family, personally. Um, mm. it was always just one one thing after another of incidences and it got mm. me in with some really bad people. Um, but my sister, well, not my sister, she's my best friend of 22 years. I often call her my sister, but it's important to clarify for this because it wasn't my, it wasn't my family. It was, it was, her family was extremely abusive from the time she was about four years old up mm-hmm. until, up until she was old. And so when, when I hear things like this, that it's, I'm, I'm so excited about this, first of all, that I don't even know which direction to pick the tangent I want to go in. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, because I, last year, I went back to school to study the effects of laughter from an evolutionary standpoint and how that correlates to trauma therapy. So if uh-huh. you introduce humor intentionally into trauma therapy to spark reactions instead of 
you know, a monologue about what you went through. If you have somebody show a piece or something, how does that change the way therapy affects people? And mm-hmm. I did that only because my sister could not sustain to watch stand-up comedy with me anymore because where abuse threw me into her, it kicked her out of it. So she, right. not, so, so she was dealing with humor anymore. So she was dealing with a lot of triggers. Yes. Yes. An extreme amount, an extreme amount to the point where like, if, if her partner and I at that time were like kind of telling you like rough jokes, like ribbon with each other, roasting each other, and we were laughing, it would be triggering to her because, because she wasn't allowed to laugh. She wasn't allowed to poke fun. She wasn't allowed to feel. Right. And so she didn't right. know how to do that. It had to compartmentalize that then when the trauma began to occur. Right. Well, that's, that's so, a sort of, uh, overarching um, the vision for the project is that people will see a different paradigm. You know, I mean, every time this is addressed and to a certain degree, rightfully so, it's, it's always addressed in a very solemn and, 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 and cautious way. Um, and, and this is just sort of throwing that caution to the wind. And it's somebody whose, you know, natural instinct is to turn this into comedy uh, doing that. And, we've really never seen that before. And, and, you know, if somebody is watching, if somebody is uninitiated, doesn't really know what they're seeing and they watch this, they can't really get upset because everybody who's making jokes about this has been victimized in some way by it. And so just an alternate perspective, an alternate paradigm for, well, what do you do with all of that? All of that emotional upheaval, all of that, you know, lack of, of, of self-esteem, all of that guilt that's misappropriated. And, and Andy, even at one point, he, when he says, when he starts talking about, I'm going to see this guy, he's like, I want him to think about me. He goes, I've thought about him every single day since I was 12. Okay. He goes, and I, and he hasn't, I'm sure his life has gone on. He's whatever. He goes, I just want to sit down and look at him in the eye and make him think about me for once, you know, since this. And all that sort of stuff is really you know, I mean, without judging any of for me, for me, I think that, I think that you need to be able to find the humor in it. Um, and that was something that I, I realized as I talked to, because I had a lot of involvement in the, in the community here, right. The support community for victims. Right. So I had a lot of involvement. So I had had access to ask people these questions, right. And just say, Hey, how do you respond to this? And for me, for me, if you can't, when people say you can't laugh about that, you can't make jokes about that. I know you went through it, but you can't make a joke right. about that. Like, right. wait a minute. This is like, this is like telling my disabled aunt that she can't make a joke about, about being paralyzed. It's part of her humanity. Right. She should be able to laugh at it. If you tell me I can't laugh right. at it. You're taking that part of my humanity away. And sure, that's a cover sometimes, but... <laughs> Nonetheless. So that's the whole, that's the whole you know that's the reason why this is such a challenging project for me. I mean, as a, as a as an artist, in this case a, a filmmaker, uh, um, it's it, it's sort of like it, as a comedic artist trying to make something that is that is very very respectful of what the significance of this topic is. 
but at the same time funny. It, it's almost like the, you know, climbing the Mount Everest of comedy. Can you make comedy out of something that's really, really tragic and really destroys lives? And comedy that is compassionate and, and considerate and respectful at the same time. Uh, so that's why I'm spending so much time on it because I, it's a worthy endeavor, both creatively, artistically, and just to put out into the world, I think. I think that it's also, it's also important to look at when people consider whether they're going to accept something or not, you know, like a piece like this or how they're going to react to it. They also have to consider who's putting it out. You know what I mean? It's not just about the content and how it's how it's put out. Who's putting this out? Can you trust people? One of my one of my favorite examples of this was the and I and I will bring it up. The Daniel Sloss's ex was one of my yeah. favorite examples of how somebody handled that. I saw the show twice in person. And the way they yeah. handled that because I have I have an automatic no reaction to trigger warnings because when you tell me a trigger warning that tells me that I have to prepare that that I should be triggered. Yeah. It's almost already a, a trigger warning itself is I'm, a trigger. I'm now triggered. I'm now triggered, right? I would yeah. have been fine, now I'm triggered. Now I have to wonder am I safe with you? Whereas the way they handled it was hey, remember who you're talking to. Remember who's presenting this. And remember that your stories are safe with this person. This is why we invest in the artist for me, because that's an investment to me. Like I'm very invested in the artists that I that I want to go see and I want to participate in their work. That- Yeah, I always prefer- I always prefer art of any kind that challenges me as opposed to that. And I always try to explain to people, I go, it's just like riding a roller coaster, except emotionally. It's like right. when you get on a roller coaster, you go in way faster than is safe. It's scaring the hell out of you. This thing, you know, it, it's designed to be that, you know, but you have a great time and you get off and you're like, wow, that was intense. And art can do that emotionally, you know? And I just try and explain to people, it's okay to feel those things. It's in a, in a very safe, right. confined, textualized space. And if that's not one of the, Great, great advantages or joys of art. I, I don't know what is. For me, that's why I'm there. I'm here because you're going to evoke something. I went to that show because when I saw the show Jigsaw, it it radically changed my life, right? It was a factor in my mm -hmm. life at that time that radically shifted my perception. I went to that show with the same intention. I don't want you to tell me I'm not going to be safe. I, I'm already here because I trust you. I'm already here because I yeah. want your material. You know, right? I, yeah. I think it's really important that people people really take time to sit with them. That you know, uh, is not about experiencing yeah. safely all the time. I agree. So that's what. So that's a project that I've been spending a lot of time on. Uh, but I think it's worth every minute. Um, and um, and as an aside to that project, uh, I also did a special uh, with Andy, which is not at all about that topic it's just a, a, a different stand-up show of Andy's it's related only in that there is a certain darkness and danger to Andy's comedy hmm. that is no doubt related but they can exist in separate universes so I've also done this special which will probably be coming out in the summer um, um, and the audio will probably be, you know, Spotify and Pandora and all that sort of stuff. But um, it's called Last Shot. And um, and that was a, a pretty cool project to work on. And um, what else? Safe, you might appreciate this one in particular. Cool. Safe's a little older. 
sequels, so this is more directed at safe, but uh, I just co-produced with uh, my dear friend and uh, comedy soulmate, uh, Dan Pasternak. We just did a three episode, six parts uh, documentary on the 80s comedy boom, the genesis of it. Super up my alley. (laughs) Yeah, it's really, it's really great. Dan did a fantastic job. And I mean, everybody from you know, Jay Leno, Marshall Warfield, Judy Tenuta, and, you know, Bob Saget, and Gilbert Gottfried, and I mean, the, the, the Paul Reiser, it's all the people who experienced the 80s boom talking about it from the inside. Uh, and it's a, it, it's a fantastic little piece I'm very proud to have been a part of. So you might want to check it out. Uh, what's the, it's what's on, the title it's on, of that? It's on Sirius XM. Uh-huh. It's, it's called Boomers. Boomers? Uh, oh, this sounds awesome. Boomers. Uh, and it's three episodes split into halves each, so it's six episodes. And there, there might be some coming down the pike uh, continuation of it, a few more episodes, but um, uh, it's w- really well produced and, and, and well thought out. And Dan's written a, a narrative arc for it that's just so literate and lovely. Um, so I highly recommend that if you have Sirius. And if you don't have Sirius, actually, if you go to their website and you you know search for this uh, Boomers, um, you can click on Start Free Trial and you can listen to all of it for a week. <laughs> so you don't have to have Sirius right now to, to listen to okay. it. Highly recommend. Well, I'll say this, Paul. Uh... In regards to trigger warnings, I mean, like, you know how cigarettes have Surgeon General's warning? Yeah. So maybe it'll be like, you know, Comedian Field Marshal's warning. This might upset you. <laughs> yeah. Actually, it's sort of like, you know, all those warnings are about insurance companies. So yeah. <laughs> most of the product, the things that say, don't spray this Windex in your eyes. You know, that's really because of insurance companies. So as soon as it becomes a... Uh, a thing where people are um, initiating civil lawsuits against comedians, that's probably what'll happen. There's a comedian in the UK called Amadeus Martin, and he has this gag about the difference between Superman costumes in America and in Britain, that in Britain it says 100% cotton, and in America it says this does not mean you can fly. Right, right. That's perfect analogy. It's exactly what it is. <laughs> um, uh, but like in relation to that, did you say it's Andy? What's the surname again? Sorry, Andy. What? And Andrist, A N D R I S T. And he's had a um, he had a CD out many years ago uh, on Stand Up Records called uh, "Dumb It Down for the Masses." So that's some older work. Uh, this new special is is called uh, Andy Andrist's Last Shot, mm. and um, uh, Doug participated in that as well. But um, yeah, it gets into some pretty challenging territory. Because yeah, I, I was going to say, like, uh, I was like, when I like, I have to admit and confess that I got totally emotionally curveballed by the subject matter of what your project is because I can relate. I can <laughs> I can totally relate. This uh, young man, tell the well, rest of the class. Well, basically for show and tell, I brought in my pedophile. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, 
I do totally believe that everything has humor. And if you use humor to tackle any subject, I mean, hell, uh, I often talk about this, like, you know, in a nutshell, the day my sister passed away, her widower and I sat on the bed telling each other jokes, doing impressions, just trying to laugh. And, you know, in a matter of hours, we were burying her, you know, because like in Middle East, it's in Islam, it's you get buried the same day you pass away and mm -hmm. um humor has been a humongous force of like my understanding on how to handle adversities and tragedies and there's one phrase i think you've heard of, thrown around a lot is compartmentalization the mm -hmm. the idea that you're able to compartmentalize what happened to you and I was blessed and cursed with a high intelligence that I was able to compartmentalize and shield it away from my family because the tragedy is, right. that, you know, for I, unfortunately, I'm not one incident. I had like three incidents and a fourth attempt and three separate incidents, you know, <laughs> once at age six, once at age eight and once at age 12, and the 12 was a family friend. So that kind of completely, you know, it completely blew my mind and destroyed me. But at the same time, I couldn't tell my mother because she just lost her daughter, her 26 year old daughter. Right, and, right. You know, like the whole family just became so like I think I compartmentalized that and then I got into a relationship ironically with a crazy psycho ex I don't know if you met her or not because she did come up to Edinburgh but I think the first time I met you was 2006 where she came in 2005 and I don't know if you were there that year I don't think you were she unlocked the Pandora's box of the compartment because she had suffered a abuse in her early age and um I think one dark humor joke that I got in terms of my way of dealing with it is like, you know how guys in the locker room say, oh yeah, you know, Stephanie, she's an eight, you know, Cheryl, she's a nine. Yeah. You know, I must have been yeah. an 11 for pedophiles. <laughs> Dude. That's got to be uplifting. <laughs> it is. You know, I mean, like, uh, like now at age 44, I'm like, yeah, I guess I must have been like a super, so you know, you know, come here, you sexy little fat kitty. You know, I see your guilt eating. Let me <laughs> let me add some more guilt for you to eat. You know, it's like, <laughs> let me justify, <laughs> I mean, let me justify yeah. your comfort food eating. Come here, you. So uh, it's <laughs> it's like, yeah, you if you look for the humor intertwined with the tragedy, you do find a way of being able to cope. And I think there are a lot of comedians, not just Andy, but like, you know, I know Billy Connolly went through tragedy mm -hmm. at the hands of his grandfather. Janie Godley went through similar mm -hmm. tragedy, you know, and mm -hmm. so many comedians, they, they talk about it, they bring it up on stage, you know, they address it. Me in the Middle East, I tend not to bring it up so much just because, mm -hmm. and that's not saying that it doesn't happen. It's not like, you know, and now for the pedophile capital of the world, the Middle East. No, it's not like that at all. Cause that's horrible to say like, you know, which country's got, and now the pedophile Olympics, let's see which country has the highest number of pedophiles, you know, like, mm -hmm. and in close contenders might be Japan with their fascination with high school girls singing in Yakuza bars. Mm 
Well, you know, there's a website here where you can put your zip code in and, and all these little red dots pop up to tell you where oh, the yeah. sex offenders live in your area. Oh, that's sure. lovely. Um, uh, well, you know, Safe, that thing, is, it, it's interesting. There's two things to say about this. First of all, you know, uh, I always used to explain to people there's a subtle difference. Uh, um, you know, a lot of people assume that when you're making jokes about things or something mm. that's an escape. And I would always clarify, no, comedy has never been an escape for me. It's been a coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. It's, it's different. the opposite of escape. It's no. put yeah. me deeper into it to cope yes. with it. And yes. I think that's a really interesting distinction. And the other thing is what George Carlin said, which was that, you know, every time you make a joke about something uh, and someone laughs, a little channel opens in their brain, you know? that allows something in that hadn't been in before, or, you know, it just, it just kind of changes the way you receive information. And, and, and so when you make a joke about something, it gets in there. That's, that's the way he put it. He goes, it just gets in there. And he goes, and that's enough in, in, in a lot of, a lot of the time that's enough. It's just get it in there. You know, think about this, think about it, feel it. Don't be afraid of it. That's the thing that comedy does is it makes it something that you don't have to be afraid of. Right. It doesn't change the significance of it or the meaning well, it of redistributes, it. It redistributes the power, you know, for me, for me, because like, like comedy is very empowering when I, when I reach a point and I've had multiple traumas. Right. And so I say that with the perspective of applying this to multiple times of this happening at different stages in my life, where it, it, it takes away that power. For me, it says, no, 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 no. I get to decide how I feel about this. I get to decide how I process this. I get mm -hmm. to decide what it means. And then because I learned how important that was emotionally, I got super nerdy about it and got addicted to the science behind it, which is how it literally changes the chemistry in your brain. It, changes it does, right? Yeah, that's kind of what you're calling. Yeah, and there, there are studies that show that just by the very presence of laughter, like it doesn't matter what the context is, right? If you take if you take the the context of the joke out of it and you just look at the behavioral reaction of laughter, if you're laughing next to somebody, whether you agree with them, whether you don't, you could be on totally opposite ends of the spectrum on every issue. If you laugh next to each other, biologically, your brain will bond you together. Your brain will you tell you safe person this is someone i can interact with this is positive this is how we socialize this is how we keep our community safe because that's how it developed before language right and right. so when that essential a friend of mine who's I, a neuro I, sorry uh, a friend of mine who's a neurosurgeon actually confirmed something interesting which is on a relative tangent to both of what you're saying that if you're angry and you in a moment overcome your anger, that actually changes the way you think permanently towards something that might've made you angry in the mm -hmm. first place. You mm -hmm. no longer get angry at that. And mm -hmm. You know, when, uh, when um, uh, Mel Brooks used to get criticism early on, I mean, I guess I, I, I don't want to say it was his prime, but you know, around like, uh, um, the producers, you know, the original movies, the 60s, you know, it's when, when Mel Brooks film. really into his own and becoming identified as, well, this guy's one of the funniest people on the planet, right? He often got a lot of criticism from 
uh, Jews and people, uh, interested parties who would say, you know, making jokes about Nazis, making jokes about the Holocaust, it's all trivializing and it's, and it's demeaning and all of that. And his response was very simple. And he goes, no, because he goes, I am making every one of those people who did horrible things to human, to humankind, I am making them ridiculous. And he said, and if we all understand that they are ridiculous, they'll never be taken seriously. Right. And, uh, you know, I mean, I'm sure there's arguments on both sides of that, but um, I think it's no, a valid perspective. Well, well yeah. one of the things is when people say that and they have the argument for like the, the neuroscience side of it, they're always thinking about like oxytocin and, and the, you know, the joy producing, you know, components of the brain that laughter elicits, right? Oxytocin, serotonin, joy, happiness, connection, but people, there's another one called carfentanil and all carfentanil does is reduce stress. And it's mm -hmm. more significant than the production of oxytocin or serotonin. And so laughter's purpose, it's not, I get into this argument with people where they're like, either it's not serious or like it's there, they make this argument about it being about joy. You're laughing about it because you can find it funny. You're laughing about it because you can find something positive in it. But laughter is not always positive. It just, right. it just exists. It's neither positive nor negative. There's no connotation. It just exists. Right. So the benefits right. that it gives us is even, is even more significant. Right. Well, um, uh, so that's kind of all, you know, tied into this project that I've been spending so much time on because, um, um, you know, and, and through the course of it, I mean, I, 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 there are people very close to me in my life. I myself had never been abused in that way, but so many people that I love have been, and so many people that I know. And the more, this is another aspect of it that's interesting, is that Andy's brother, there had been attempted abuse on Andy's brother, a, a couple of years older than him. There was abuse in his household from other, other people. Uh, um, but nobody ever talked about it. And as I, as I talk about this project with so many people, it, it loosens people up to talk about their thing. And so it, it became about, it also becomes about just communicating about it. Mm. Like everybody is so shamed by the experience or traumatized by their response to the experience that it's not talked about. And it needs to be talked about because you, know, you throw a little sunlight on this and you know the whole world changes and, and so that's another aspect in fact one of the controlling images in 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 this doc is andy on mic is him talking about it very very publicly whether it be in his stand-up or whether it be on podcasts or whatever so a lot of footage of him speaking publicly on mic throughout the whole film and that's kind of a comment on well that's what we have to do right. he kept it to himself for so long turned it inward, damaged himself. It had an effect on his marriage, it had an effect on his child, it had an effect on his career. You know, he became an alcoholic, he started going crazy, all this sort of stuff. And it's like, just the act of talking about it was, you know, a, a huge relief. And, and uh, so that's another aspect of this film that's important. It's like, hey, you might be able to make a joke about this horrible thing happened to you. And you watch what happens when you do. You'll find out that 20 people that you know and love had a similar experience and, and never, it just never came up. And the more people relate and connect with, oh, that happened to you, that happened to me, the more we, we become, you know, uh, joint humanity. 
Well, it's really, you know, the, the talking about it thing, because I never, I never talked about it with my family, because to talk about what I went through with my parents in detail is to just give them information that's going to not do them good. I gave them the messages without all the detail, right? Because they don't, they right. don't, right. at this point, there's nothing they can right. do 10 years down the road, right? They don't need that haunting. Right. But but my my friend Nikki, she has she has talked a lot about this. And when you when you talked about his experience with his family and their other attempts and the other things and no one talking about it, it brought to light what she really uses the word a lot is this culture of it. Now where she was is mm -hmm. it was, you know, it was her family propagating this. It was her family abusing them. It was her family putting them on display and and, and videoing them and all of these horrible things, right? And, mm -hmm. and there were people that were in on it and there were people that didn't know and there were people that ignored it, but it's this culture, this, this, and I'm, I'm going to be blunt, this rape culture that exists with, within these communities, because some of that's the other extent that, you know, sometimes it's, it's a, it's a one-off individual who's doing this, right? There's, there's one right. person assaulting people, but rape culture is a community it's, it's a community. People can't get away with doing that for years without a community. You know, that's, that's not how that works. And, and that's the other thing that relates to what I was saying about this is that uh, it all relies on silence. It all relies on you being oppressed by this in incident that where it becomes impossible to talk about. Right. And, uh, and so that's another commentary that the film makes, which is like, you know, no, you know, Andy always, you know, that's another thing that he says in the doc is he's like, you know, why have I been the one who's been ashamed by this for 40 years? Why, why me? Why isn't this guy ashamed? Right. You know? So it transfers back to where it belongs. It's, it's yeah, it's heavy stuff, but it's a really, really, really interesting artistic challenge to to have it live in both, you know, the truthfulness uh, and the and the the compassion of the reality and the world of comedy. It's a fascinating, interesting place to be working. So I, I, hopefully you'll see that movie in the next year or two. Hopefully it'll come out. I uh, I'm so close to finishing it. <laughs> Oh, no. I'm so excited. This I'm, is I'm also excited. incredible. Yeah. Well, I'll let you guys know when Andy's special comes out and you can see how, how this experience has definitely made his sense of humor really, really dark and interesting and also really compassionate. He can be really, he's one of the few comics that can be, can say some of the most like shocking things uh, and, and, but at the same time, you, you want to just hug them, you know? For, for about a year, before I started taking any kind of active role in participating within comedy, right? Which I still kind of do from the sidelines. I'm mostly just doing my own research for stuff. But before that, I was just, just attending shows and just, just talking to people after and just, just having conversations because that's, that's my idea of what I do for my weekend, right? right. That's what I enjoy. And I have found, though, on, on a note to what you're saying about him with his shocking comedy, but then his disposition sometimes being the, the opposite of that when you're you know chatting with him, 
That's very common in my experience though. And I find that those comedians who lay those things out and who, who are having those conversations are the people who I can talk to after the show. They're the ones well, who are the, like, yeah, you're a human being. I, I had that conversation. But the thing I was saying about Andy that's so compelling is it's not a difference between his onstage persona and his offstage persona. While he's on stage saying these really challenging and really questionable you know, things, you still want to hug them. That's yeah. what makes it really interesting to me. It's not a split personality. It's not a on stage, off stage thing. It's like Andy's. Andy is so truthful that even when he's going to places that are like, "Oh, Andy," and in fact, in his special, I, I left this in. You could hear the audience going, "Oh, Andy, no, Andy, no," because that's very much what 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 it's like seeing Andy. Uh, even as you're doing that, you want to hug him. And that's the odd thing is it's not a, an onstage, offstage distinction. It's it's all there in one. So I think he's a fascinating comic. I'm I think you'll dig him. Special is really I love when people give me a new comic to look at, right? It makes me so happy to have to have like it's like a new adventure every time I find mm -hmm. a new one to dig into. It's it's really mm -hmm. wonderful. Yeah, and his special starts off. It starts off really kind of fluffy, not you know, really kind of like, uh, like okay, you know, not anything I haven't seen before. It's funny, but it's not anything I haven't seen before. And then before you know it, you're in territory that's like, how did I end up here? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yes. Yeah, you'll dig them, safe. Where are you? Where'd you go? Are you masturbating to your own abuse stories? No, God, no, no, not since yesterday. Um, Can I? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, ironically, you know, uh, I was just like, I, I'm, I'm trying to like get, get back some composure. <laughs> I'm trying to like get out of the dark place, come back into the happy it's, place. It's a, it's a tough journey when, when you, when you run through your own, when you, especially when you hear a story like this, like for me, that really resonates with me, right? This is something that I really gravitate towards and, and it's hard to pull through that journey though. It is like, like no. I'm in trauma therapy right now. And that is not easy to walk out of once you go through a chunk of this process. I think, no, yeah. I think, I think the reason why I kind of also, why it blew me away, the concept of what you're working on is also because the third incident that occurred was a family friend and years later, there happened to be someone that became like a doppel like there was someone in my social group that was a doppelganger of this guy uh -huh. and i find out uh -huh. and i find out years later no no doppelganger in look and speech and mannerisms but nothing happened but i right. find out a good chunk of years later that he is that his mother's brother is the guy that's why he looks so much like his uncle that's why he sounds oh, so much wow. like his uncle is because he's oh, wow. you know a walking clone so it 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 set back my my recovery my road yeah. to damascus it it's made me go on the road to moscow so i ended up going <laughs> walking to saint petersburg in blizzards in my mind you know trying to fix this I did manage to finally fix and everything, and now I can say that I'm a survivor of it, but it's still, it's one of those dark subject matters that affects many people. A close friend of mine recently, he just 
explained to me about how something similar happened to him in his childhood from a teacher. And it was the reason behind a lot of his anger and a lot of his, you know, violence, thoughts, you know, but he's now overcoming that and he's trying to face that. And it just goes to show, and he comes to me for like advice because he knew about my opening up about what I went through. Because what I went through was like a real Chernobyl. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like the worst devastation area, Chernobyl, Hiroshima, Nagasaki and the surface of Mars and the NASA budget all rolled into one. You know, yeah, it really definitely it destroys one. a person's inner, inner life. It, you know, as Andy uh, and, and his brothers, who also had been abused, which he didn't find out about until much later in life, yeah, they talk about how it, it almost it puts this is what you were talking about how you must have been an 11 to pedophiles they talk about how this, it almost puts a, a target on you and other people who know to look for that find it and so it ends up drawing that to you over time because the people who take advantage of that can somehow tell that you're susceptible you know and 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 it just really is it's just a horrible, horrible thing. And it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And, you know, you don't have to believe in any QAnon theories about, you know, a global pedophile ring to just be able to say, well, you don't need all of that because it's I everywhere. Still, it, still, it still escapes me the relationship between pizza, a fucking great dish, and pedophiles. Is it just because of the yeah, letter I P? Know. Is it because of the letter P? You know, I always had this idea in my head, like if ever there was like an LGBTQIA meeting and they were like, oh, we need to add a new one. What about P for, you know, people? And be one creepy person in the back going, don't forget about the pedophiles. No, those are not part of our equation. You know, it's like, it's so... You need to see him. You need to watch Andy's special. He does a, a bit that is about adding letters. You'll love it. Was it like Dave Chappelle's and Sticks and Stones? No, it's very, it's particularly Andy's. Oh, it's well, I'll give you a rough. Basically, basically what he says is, you know, LGBTQ, they're constantly fighting for rights, but they're never going to get rights until they add another letter. And it's a really uncomfortable thing and they're not going to want to do it, but they have to add the letter P for pedophiles. Because if you want to change, if you want to, you want to get rights, you got to get the Christians behind you. <laughs> ironically because it shows you how you know like great minds think alike i had like something similar to where i thought instead of all of those letters they just go for hb which can double up as a happy birthday every day is a birthday and hb is for uh -huh. human beings or p for people because essentially that's what right. they are is people human beings but right you know it, it, I'm I'm still blown away by like how there was that. Do you remember there was that TED Talk, the only TED Talk in the history of TED Talks that got withdrawn and got pulled, was when that Which woman. One? It's the one where a young woman came forward and wanted to try and propose pedophilia, be treated and by society, as a preference. Uh huh. And the, you know, like the rotten, I don't know what the Rotten Tomatoes rating on that TED Talk was, but I do know that it was the first TED Talk and the only TED Talk that has been pulled out of, you know, being uh, on YouTube on the TED Talk channel. Yeah. 
It was on. It was on. It was on the air for two weeks. It was on the air for two weeks. Like people were watching this for two weeks worth, giving her her day in court, and they were all just like, "No, uh, uh-uh. no, no, no." Well, that since the uh, since the, at least the seventies, that's when I first became aware of this. But there was a group called NAMBLA, the, which stands for the North American Man Boy Love Association. South uh, that is it brilliantly. That's right. South Park did did cover it, but I know it's been around since the seventies. I mean, when I was in in high school, uh, uh, um, no, we're the North American Marlon Brando lookalikes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. South Park did did cover that. In fact, I used to do a thing about uh, you know the band In Sync. I used to do a, a, a an iteration of which was N apostrophe Ambla. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, there is comedy to be had there, but uh, and I think that if more people, you know, Dave Attell, in, in, for my book Satiristas, he he, uh, I interviewed Dave Attell, and he said something really. He was making a joke, but not at the same time. And he said, "Let me tell you something." He goes, "If you're a kid and you go to church and you get molested by a priest, then you just weren't paying attention to comedians because they've been telling you this for years, you know." <laughs> and it's like. These jokes are not coming out. They're not coming from Mars, you know? They're no. coming from reality. Uh, well, I think back to the Nambla episode of South Park, I think my favorite part in that was when the kids are being chased by the pedophiles yeah. in the hotel. And then they're in one yeah, hotel room, finally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then Carbon just goes, okay, okay. Look, it's very simple. These pedophiles are not going to have it. So one of us is going to have to take one for the team. Butters, you mean I have to let these young men have sex with my body? <laughs> All right, pedophiles, here I come. <laughs> so it's like, but um, I think the like they they talk South Park. I think ironically, when you used to do that, I think it was called the Green Room in the Fringe of two thousand six, and you used to get yeah, and it was a show. Yeah, you can. It's online. Go see it. Tell everybody. Everybody, let me tell both your viewers. Uh, to, uh, <laughs> both our uh, viewers. Thank on. you. <laughs> the only two. <laughs> yeah. The only two I, listeners I, uh, to this podcast. Thank you, Paul. That's that's, that's, that's uh, Amy. Um, we've got like three hundred uh, yeah, plays, to, but uh, okay. It's on. Um, I'm sorry. It's on Amazon, uh, and also it's it's clipped all over the place on YouTube. You, you probably don't even have to spend money to see it, but there's 14 episodes. And uh, if you're a comedy fan, yeah, I think you'll love it. Cause the agenda on the green room shows say if you were there when I was developing it at the Edinburgh mm-hmm. fringe. Uh, but you know, the, the, the caveat was I, uh, I told the audience, which I also do on the series, uh, you know, you're not allowed, you're not supposed to be here. We're allowing you to be here. So you're not, you can't get offended by anything. This is us just talking and there's you know screw you your opinions and um uh uh the beauty of the green room the whole philosophy behind it was i that in my life i have encountered some of the most fascinating and and stimulating and provocative conversations with other comedians who aren't afraid to say anything and um uh they're they're intelligent they've traveled the world they've they talk to heads of state they talk to plumbers and, and homeless people, you know, and um, 
uh, it's interesting to hear their perspectives on the world. And so that's what the show is, is it's really kind of jazz as far as that goes. And I, and, and the whole premise of it was that I always know when these conversations happen, no matter how heated they get, no matter how argumentative they get, mm. it also always gets funny because somebody's got something funny to say. And this to me is the greatest example of how to communicate. Uh, uh, so there's, shows with some very interesting combinations of people on them getting into some real interesting stuff. And the show, we had no agenda on the show. There was literally no format. The TV series begins mid, you know, we're already having a conversation as the camera finds us. Uh, so we try to eschew all the trappings of show business and presentationalism. So it's all really just like verbal jazz, but, um, uh, if anybody's really into comedy, uh, it's a great show to watch. Uh, and I don't is, see any money from it, so I'm just telling you, go see it, you'll enjoy it. Well, I know it is because the funny thing is there's all these different groups on Facebook for the comedians, for stand-up comedians. And there's one called The Comedy Collective, and a comedian, I forget his name, had written a post where he was basically saying he had an idea for a sitcom set in a green room, <laughs> And then suddenly, literally every other comment was, dude, you're not the only one I had that idea. Dude, you're not the only one I had that idea. I was the one that wrote, I wrote, well, actually, Paul Provenza did that at the Edinburgh Fringe uh -huh. Festival in 2006 and in 2007, you know, uh -huh. and I think 2008 as well. You know, like, I think he, you know, and it's online, it's on YouTube. Here's the link. So it's like, it's so funny because what I loved about you, whatever you used to do as, let's just say a composer rather than a conductor, because you're, because you do come up with some phenomenal concepts that you bring together, be it set list, be it green room, be it whatever, the aristocrats, this documentary you're doing is that you are blessed with this sort of like insight into like, well, this is what would make a great testimony of that moment, that little zeitgeist huh. moment. Well, thank you. That, pe that people could get exposed thank to. Thank you. But I appreciate that. But you, and the other, the other thing that is, um, uh, I'm really proud of in terms of the the Showtime series, the Green Room, hmm. uh, is the the fact that it seems like random combinations of comedians, but it's quite the opposite. In fact, I, we scrapped entire lineups because somebody dropped out. They're all wow. really very well carefully collected. Uh, you know, there's a reason Patrice O'Neill is on the same show with Roseanne Barr and Bob Saget and Sandra Bernhard. They're all there for a reason. And, and that's a great one to talk about because that's a great example of, of, of of what I'm talking about is because I know Patrice and I knew him, you know, I, I knew Patrice and I, I knew him. I had a relationship with him that was a very different one than most people have. Right. My relationship with Patrice was one where I didn't really experience his belligerence the way if you watch him on, if you listen to him on Opie and Anthony or you watch him on Colin Quinn's Tough Crowd, you know, he always dominated and it was always his force of Patrice O'Neill. But I also knew that Roseanne Barr had seen Patrice online somewhere and she thought he was fantastic. Patrice didn't know that. So when I put him on the show with Roseanne, it was because Patrice was intimidated by Roseanne. 
And I thought, hmm, well, that'll help keep Patrice in check. He's not going to want to dominate this because he's overshadowed and he has respect for a big star uh, and a great comedian like Roseanne. And at the same time, I also knew that Patrice and Bob Saget had done some gigs on the road together. And I knew that they knew each other. And I wanted to have Bob Saget on the show. And I knew that Bob knew Roseanne. They have Bob, myself, Roseanne. We would have no problem having conversation with ourselves. But I knew that Patrice would not let Bob Saget do what Bob Saget always does, which is just do jokes. Because you can't spend more than five minutes with Patrice without Patrice saying, get real motherfucker. And so I knew that Patrice would put Bob where I wanted Bob. I knew that Roseanne would put Patrice where I wanted Patrice. And Roseanne always needs a level of confidence. And so I asked Sandra, who's an old friend of mine, who I just adore. I think she's one of the most underrated comedians alive. Uh, she's brilliant. Um, uh, I put her on there because she and Roseanne have been friends for years. Obviously, they did the, the old series together. Uh, and I knew that that would give Roseanne a level of comfort. So the actual seemingly random combinations of comedians is, is, is actually not. It's actually pretty well calculated to get into parts of people that I knew I wanted to get to. So I was pretty proud of, of, of how I, I think with reasonable success, uh, pretty consistently. But I've always wanted to know this, uh, rather than Google it, I'd rather ask you because I feel Google is so impersonal. When did, <laughs> didn't you uh weren't you a stand-up comedian as well back in your early youth in your youth i've been doing stand-up my whole life i still I, I i haven't been performing lately but uh i still consider myself a stand-up comic i just spent uh, i spent quite a lot of time uh working in different sort of expressions of stand-up comedy like oh, yeah. uh i did a lot I did a lot of stuff that was spontaneous um, as opposed to doing prepared material. Uh, I did uh, a lot of group stuff uh, to, to just work with other people's energies and stuff like that. But yeah, no, I've been doing stand-up comedy since I was 17 years old. I'm 63 now. Get the hell out yeah. of here. You're not, you're not 63. Stand up, stand up is in my, is in my I blood, look older man. Than I, you. <laughs> we, we were talking about that you know, coping mechanism versus escape thing. Man, when I was a kid uh, and I discovered comedy, it became my life. And, and in fact, all these things that you very generously mentioned about having some sort of a, a, a stamp of my own on, like the green room or aristocrats or satiristas, or this thing I'm working on now. Uh, what I've realized is that uh, at a certain point in my life, I decided that every project I was gonna do, I was doing specifically for me at the age of 14. Because when I was 14 years old and I discovered things that got me deeper and deeper into comedy as an art form, as an expression, as, a, as, as a, everything and anything, uh, I was obsessed with it. And that's how I judge whether or not I, I, I'm proud of something that I do is would I at 14 have loved this? I think it was Jerry Seinfeld who said, if you can take something out of thin air, and make something with that, it's art. And yeah, and you know, that another thing that relates back to what we were talking about, you know, about doing comedy around, you know, significant things like child abuse is, um, uh, I do believe it, and again, this is just, this is the artist talking, mm -hmm. if, if I may be 
still presumptuous, which is that in terms of, of, of the challenge involved, you know, it's very true that you can say that, you know, there's comedy all around and all you have to do is just, you know, be sensitive enough to it, to find it and point to it. In, and, and there's a lot of comedy that is that. There is a lot of comedy that's like, that's funny because I, I relate to it. I find it true. I'm surprised that you also do everybody in this room that's laughing with us uh, or that feeling of, oh, we all have this in common. And, you know, that's that's valuable. It's not, I'm not trying to minimize that. But the more interesting thing to me is to take something that's inherently unfunny and make mm. it funny. To me, that's alchemy. That's you've then you've accomplished something greater than just finding something. You know, you haven't just dug and found a little piece of gold. You've gone down to the chemical, you know, the biochemical level and created a piece of gold. In terms of creativity and alchemy. A lot of my listeners are creatives, fellow creatives. Some of them are comedians. Some of them are writers, artists, and so on. And every one of us, we all now and then hit that proverbial brick wall, that creator's block. Have you ever hit that creator's block? And have you got like a shareable secret to the listeners, to myself, and to anyone who might want to overcome that obstacle of a creator's block? Well, I actually had creator's block quite literally. I actually, uh, there was a point at which I had taken some time off from stand-up because I kind of was like, I'm not sure what I, what I care about. I'm not sure what I want to do anymore. I'm tired of talking about the things I'm talking about. I'm tired mm. of, of, I don't know. I just, I, I, I just felt like there's someplace else that I can go creatively, right? And so I took a couple of years off from doing standup and I was really very productive in those times. I did some TV series. I did some directing, uh, some theater directing. I starred in a, it Steve Martin's play in New York. Uh, um, I did a lot of stuff that I was really happy and excited about doing. After a couple of years of being away from standup, I, I was feeling like, oh, you know, now I feel like I want to see what's there. And I want to go back to it to see what happens after having taken some time off. And much to my shock, surprise, and chagrin, I ended up with pathological stage fright that persisted for a good two and a half or three years. And it was really, 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 really traumatic for me. And it was really difficult. And I'm talking like seriously, like, like I would book a gig and I would get on the plane and go to the gig. And at the airport in the destination city, I would call the club and say, I'm in the hospital, I can't make the gig and get back on the plane and go home. I mean, I was really in bad shape. And, um, and what it was doing to me internally is like, well, this has been my identity. This has been my, this has been my soul from yeah. you know, most of my conscious life. How am I going through? I, I just didn't know what to do with it. And, and it really screwed with me for a long, like I said, about two and a half or three years it took me to get through it. And how I got through it, and again, this is not a prescription for anybody else, but I'm just telling you my experience. How I got through it was thanks to a comedian who you may or may not know named Mike Dugan. Mike Dugan is an old friend of mine. We've been friends since the early days of comedy. And Mike had spent a lot of time in the UK. And Mike was uh, working with Rich Hall a lot. That's kind of what brought him to the UK. And... um, 
And Mike would come back and we would hang out and he would tell me all about these experiences over in the UK. And I just said, can you hook me up with somebody over there? And, and I had, you know, I have friends over in the UK. I have had them since the early eighties and people there. And I had been exposed to the comedy scene in the UK, but I hadn't for a while at the point of time that this was happening. And, um, and Mike just sort of explained to me what's going on over there. And I was like, you know what? If I go over there, nobody's gonna know who I am. I'm sure that the average person in the comedy scene over in the UK doesn't know my history, doesn't know what I've accomplished, doesn't know what I'm at. And I wouldn't have to think about anything other than, I thought to myself, this could be the opportunity to become the closest to feeling what I felt when I started doing stand-up, which is I just want to be on stage. I just want to make people laugh. I'm not thinking about the business. I'm not thinking about stepping stones. I'm not thinking about what's going to take me to any place in my career. It just felt, felt like an opportunity to be, get back to a certain purity. Hmm. And so I did. So I called John Keyes, who uh, was info I got from Mike Dugan. And John didn't really know much about me, but he did a little research. And he was like, okay, you're legit, you know? And he booked me into a couple of gigs in the UK. And in the intervening time between the time he booked me into those gigs and the time I was off to go those gigs, he said, I have an opportunity for you in Holland, in, in Amsterdam. Are you interested in doing a weekend at this club called Tumblers? And I was like, well, in the back of my head, what happened, the process was, I'm not working in Amsterdam now. So no matter how badly I do, it's not going to make it's not going to make a dent in my life. It's not changing anything, you know, and and it's I, it put me in a place where I couldn't talk myself out of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that became the first gig that I did prior to going to the UK and working some of these other gigs that John Keyes had booked me. And I really didn't know what, what to think. I was really nervous and I was really trepidatious. And I, and I thought, hey, look, you know, if, if this gets fucked up, this is great. They don't speak English. I got, I got excuses up the wazoo here. So I'm going to go do this. And I went and I showed up and all of a sudden it was like a, a spring that had been coiling for those three years of stage fright just popped. And I was doing 90 minutes a night off the top of my head, I, material came pouring out that I was excited about. Uh, I went to revisit some older material that had a whole new life to it. And it just it just changed everything. And before I left the club, at the time, Tumblr was, was run by Raul Hirchi. And Raul was a, is a sort of a student of comedy and was a, he created this, this collective of comedy over there called Comedy Train, which still exists to this day where the comics all hold themselves to you know, a, a, an agreed upon standard. They won't do certain things that come their way if it doesn't fit their manifesto of what they care about in comedy. You know? And Raul and I became really close friends. And then John Keyes told me, he said, when I called Raul and said, this guy Paul Provenza is coming over to do these gigs in the UK, would you be interested in having him? Raul said, wait a minute, the Paul Provenza? And John Keyes, who wasn't that familiar with any of my work, went, um, yeah. And Raul was like, oh, my God, we'd love to have him. So I ended up going to this because Raul was he really knew his stuff. 
And, um, you know, he hooked me up with a, when the aristocrats came out, he hooked me up with a screening. We did a screening at Tumblr where I did a Q and A afterwards with, um, 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 what's his name? Um, 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 oh, come on, help me here. He's a genius. And he's like one of the top comics in, in, in Amsterdam. Um, um, God damn it. Oh, come on. Hans Tewen. Hans Tewen. Okay. And, and so he hooked me up to do a Q&A with Hans Tewen. And I'm just sitting there not knowing anything about Hans Tewen, just being myself. And we had this like amazing thing going that I was like, really, oh, that was a cool name. And then I find out that Hans Tewen is like a, a genius, you know, an acknowledged genius, you know. And, and, and so all of that happened where I didn't know the situation I was getting into. They didn't know me, except for Raul. Uh, you know, they didn't know me. And it all just came together and it was completely liberating. And, and then I moved from, from the gig in Amsterdam to the UK and just was doing gigs and loving it. And it, it turned out to be exactly what I hoped it would be, which was as close to that feeling of, I don't care about anything other than getting on stage, getting this audience to, uh, to hear my stuff and enjoy it. And it completely reinvigorated me. And uh, I rode that high for the next 15 years. Wow. So in terms of anything that anybody, you know, not in my particular could connect to, it was really just about um, getting myself out of a context where I had more voices in my head than I had reality resonating in my head. When one of the voices that, that was eliminated mm. when I started traveling and, and working overseas was, mm. oh, I wonder what all the other comics are gonna think about what I'm doing now. Like, are they sitting there going, oh, Provenza, what are you doing? You know, I know that I was a big voice in the back of my head is the judgment of your own peers, you know, and, and, you know, and what are you doing? What are you, why are you being such an idiot? You know, and why don't you do your act, you know, and all that stuff. And it's like that voice got silenced and that was enough to free me to, to what became, I think, one of the most creative periods of my life from which I, 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 um, I hope never to, to find myself out of again, because it, it, it just freed me up so much. It's where the aristocrats came from. I was traveling back and forth to England and doing gigs in Holland and, and, and uh, ultimately all around the world because so many gigs around the world come out of the UK. Um, I was doing all of that for a month or two at a time and then coming back and working on the aristocrats for four or five weeks and then going back away for another couple of months and coming back for a week or two and working on the aristocrats and then going away again. So what the aristocrats actually is for me is a, a, a visual, it's a tangible illustration of me falling back in love with doing comedy again. I, I agree. And I, I was gonna say like what I took from that or what I extrapolated from that is that eventually there'll be that one moment where an opportunity will come and you won't be able to find any pros or cons mental checklist to talk you out of not taking the chance or taking the leap. <laughs> That's what I Yeah, kind of, well, I, put myself, I, was, I had to put myself in that situation because I could come up with excuses forever, forever. I'm, I'm, I, still, just I'm, a, still, it, I'm still a little shocked at you flying to a gig 
being in the like the Middle Easterner in me is like that is such a waste of an air ticket. <laughs> you know. Oh, believe like, believe me, it cost me too. But um, no, that's how bad it was. It was really bad. And you got to remember, I've been going on stage since I was sixteen. Yeah. Well, this has I mean, been like it's been my life. And then all of a sudden, to be for it to be the thing that was so frightening and uncomfortable and awkward that I I would do things like that was just really really disturbing to me. And so I was kind of uh, I was kind of at a desperate place. It was either kill myself or go to go to uh, <laughs> go to England. <laughs> <laughs> that's such a i'm sure the board british board of tourism will be like england it's better than suicide <laughs> better than suicide <laughs> and this is this is sort of a a little more of a superficial analysis of this whole thing but you know i had reached a point here where you know any gig the american system is different from the uk system and i, I guess probably mostly anywhere else in that um if you go on the road to work in America, if you go, if you went on the on the road to just work the comedy club circuit, the comedy club circuit was the format was always a, a, a compare, which we call AMC, yeah. and a feature act or the middle act, and then the headliner. Compare would do fifteen minutes, twenty minutes. The the middle act would do the feature act would do thirty minutes, thirty five minutes, and then the headliner you could do forty five minutes to an hour. You know, so. Uh, and the headliner was generally somebody who was accomplished or had some TV credits or could draw. And um, the feature act was generally somebody who either, you know, was from the Midwest or the South or had been just working the club circuit, not yet made their bones and doing television and getting exposure, uh, but somebody who'd been you know, around for a while. And then the, the MC or compare was usually somebody, a local act who was just making their bones and getting stage time, you know? So every gig I did for 20 years, I knew more than anybody. I was always the person who knew the most at any gig I went to. I had the most experience. I had the most success. I knew the, I, I, was, I had the most craft because I had been doing it longer and I had accomplished certain things or whatever. And when I came, went to the UK, I realized, holy shit, there's four acts on this bill. One is Brendan Burns, one is Steve Hughes, one is Glenn Wool, and one is me. And I was run with thoroughbreds every time I went on the road. That was a game changer for me. There was nobody on the bill that knew anything more than anybody else. Everybody was an equal. And that had a huge effect on me. It really upped my game, really upped my game. You know, I have to thank you because in 2006, no, sorry, 2007, you and I were at the Fat Caves and you said to me this phrase, and I quote, if you want to succeed in comedy, you got to run with thoroughbreds. That's where it came from. That's exactly where it came from. I realized, I even said, uh, said to a friend of mine back in, in, in America when I was doing something on the road, I was like, dude, the whole thing here is there is nobody on this bill, you know, who's who's worse than anybody else. Every guy, it's just you can't let up for a second. You got to grab. And then I started going to Edinburgh, where I started to see people developing one-hour shows and and developing these long arcs, and, and it just was like, oh my god, these people are behaving like artists, not nightclub comics. Mm. Not that nightclub 
committee isn't artful, but you know, they just had a bigger palette and a, and a bigger agenda. And they were constantly being pushed because you can only go around the UK one year before everybody knows your material. So every year they had to come up with a whole new act. And I was like, this is, we didn't have this in America and this is really pushing me. And that invigorated things and really, you know, so yeah. Well, yeah, you changed my life for the past 14 years. I've always run with thoroughbreds. Good for you, my friend. It's a good feeling, isn't it? It's phenomenal. It's a good feeling. feeling. It's and very the, bad when you see that one horse. But it's it's a bit of a sad. You don't know whether you should be like that rancher when the one comes in with the lame leg that you. I reckon we need to put a bullet through that young colt's head, put him out of his misery. Here's what I was just going to tell you: is here's where it comes in, comes into play in in that like that self sabotage way. It kind of reverses it for you. Is that when you're the lamest of the <laughs> thoroughbred? It doesn't feel so bad. It doesn't no. feel so bad because they're amazing. Yeah, they're amazing. I got to up my game. You know what I mean? I I I I had no problem walking backstage and you know, I mean, being on a bill with Stuart Lee at I don't know uh, Jonglers uh, Portsmouth or whatever, being on a bill with Stuart Lee and you know and sitting backstage and going. Oh my God, this guy is a genius. I don't care how much I suck compared to him. <laughs> I want to try and get as good as him. Yeah. But I know I'm not. You know? So mm. it kind of made it in a weird counterintuitive way. It made the fear of failure not so awful and the ego of failure not so awful. Because it's like, you, you know, it's like, well, I don't, I, I, that I can't do that. I just got to get good. I can, but I can't do that because that's amazing. <laughs> As opposed to being on a bill with somebody who's just you know been uh, doing comedy for five years on the road, knows how to make people laugh. But you know, it's like like Patrice O'Neill said: once you learn how to kill, you can always kill. That's not the part that gets interesting. The part that's interesting is how are you going to kill. You know, he always said is when you get to a certain point as a comic, you know, you can go into any room and you can make them laugh. But what do you want to do with that is the, is the real challenge. That was my story. Hey guys oh, like you and hang out. That's the other thing is like, you know, I started traveling and working all over the world and, 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 and the variety of voices and, and people foreign comics from and the fact that you could do I, I could be doing comedy in China and actually you know wow, wow it, it it just it just made me feel like there's nobody you can't do this with you know it's cool I think that one one thing I've come to love about the journey of stand-up comedy is that each and every one of us can you know we can kill one night and we can not kill on another night you know you might you know every hitman has a bad day at the job you know every there is that one room that you can walk into like god i was on the road in 2015 in the uk and i had three different gigs booked by a by mirth control the first one was in swindon phenomenal did great went to that room killed you know, washing blood out of my uh, out of my hands all the way home. Birmingham, 
like on a different day, that yeah. didn't go down so well because for some odd, stupid, self-sabotaging moment, I decided after a two and a half year hiatus of coffee to have three cups of coffee that day just because I was feeling ever so slightly sleepy. And it had the mm -hmm. wrong effect. It, it started with me like meeting the compere thinking she was someone I knew. And what's the worst thing you can say to a slightly overweight woman? Uh, I don't know, it's a long list, Safe, where'd you go with? I was like, oh, congratulations. No! When is the baby one. due? <laughs> oh, that's bad one. <laughs> Oh, it got worse. It got worse. Uh, then she said, like, I'm, I'm not pregnant. I'm not dating anyone. And for some odd, stupid reason, the cocaine marching power liquid decided to make me say, oh, you never know. It might be Jesus' second coming. <laughs> it was like, I almost, you know, when you've got your foot in your mouth and you're like, I wonder how my other Nike will taste in my mouth with... <laughs> You know, I don't. I don't think I'm tasting my foot yet. I think I need the other foot. But yeah, I think the journey of being a comedian and being on the road uh, is a very interesting. Like especially here in Egypt, because I know that you've been in the states, and I know you've been to the UK and you've been to Europe, and I'm presuming the Far East and Asia. You've done some gigs, or you? Yeah, and, I've, and some in the Middle East too. You know, I've done um, uh, Qatar and. Uh, um, uh, the UAE and um, Kuwait, yeah. No Iraq? No entertaining the no. troops? No, no, no. It's funny, I, I, I never did any uh, stuff for the troops. It was all um, civilian audiences. Hmm. Yeah, I know a lot of people have that experience of working over in that part of the world uh, and um, getting a lot of military. But no, the military that I encountered were all part of... Uh, audiences that were civilian mostly civilian yeah wasn't military any of that well i was gonna say like here in egypt uh the circuit is it's a very interesting one because it, some egyptian comedians will argue that the the concept of comedy has been around since you know the films started in the 40s and the 50s and even before the films there were like plays and productions but the actual concept of someone standing up in front of an audience and making them laugh the same way like a Yuck Yucks in Canada or the Comedy Store in New York or Gotham Comedy Club or Laugh Factory in LA, that really only, like it was definitely the axis of evil, Ahmed Ahmed, uh, Dino Badal and Maz Jabrani when they came mm -hmm. over in 2007. But believe it or not, I did, before I did my first Fringe, I did a, like a one-night gig here in my hometown in 2004. And even then, I mean, everyone in Egypt knew about comedy, like from George Carlin, Eddie Murphy, Richard Pryor, Pablo Francisco. They are aware of the concept. They're aware of the structure. But in regards to the Egyptian society, then there wasn't so big. Now... We've got like, you know, like there's a venue in Cairo that literally every other Sunday, there's a, there's a comedy night right now as we speak mm -hmm. happening mm -hmm. in Cairo. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's quite, it's quite mad in the sense that I'm actually kind of glad to be alive to see that day. 
Because when I started mm-hmm. coming to Egypt on holidays while I was doing comedy, I was always wondering, oh, when will the day come that you know we would have our own comedy right, festival? Right. And well, you know, there are certain parts of the world where just the concept of a person getting up on stage and speaking in their mind is radical. You know, I mean, it was it, it, that really didn't even happen here in America until the fifties and sixties. You know, with with uh, Lenny Bruce and Mort Saul. I mean, you didn't have people getting up really telling you what they thought. You know, uh, like, like Larry, I, thought, I would have thought vaudeville was somewhere in that though. Like there would have been no, an very, element. No, very superficial, not real. Uh, um, you know, a lot of character stuff. Uh, very superficial. No, no substantive material. No real revelatory. Uh, personal experience material that was not that was single two guys really changed the world in that regard and that was Mortsall and Lenny Bruce those two guys they happen to be happening at around the same time and they changed the art form it's it's incomprehensible how significant their contributions were but they were the two to get up on stage and say this is what I think I don't care what you think. This is what I have to say. I don't care what you have to say. I don't care what offends you. I don't care what disturbs you. That didn't happen until the late 50s, early 60s here in America. Mm-hmm. But once it does, and boy, it catches on. Didn't Don Rickles start around the same time? Because he looks quite, he looked up until his late 50s, you know. 50s, 60s. But Don Rickles is a slightly different thing. Don Rickles was doing what he does but if you look at what Mort Saul did was Mort Saul took the substance and the reality of life in America the culture the politics the policy the actions of the government and did that every night and then Lenny Bruce got up and started talking about all the things that you know entertainment always held sacred god america the flag and he started calling bullshit on everything that he felt like was bullshit and that had never happened before you know that's not what rickles was doing not to minimize what rickles was doing no of course but but rickles was you know he was still playing into conventional stereotypes hilarious brilliant but he didn't do anything outside a proscribed acceptability Lenny and Mortsall changed the art form completely, completely. And that was only in the late 50s, early 60s. And they paid a price for it. Lenny more so even than Mortsall. But um, um, that's my point, is that that is something that is, is the, world, the world has only been experiencing for under 100 years, because it did start here. And... Um, uh, and once it takes hold, it spreads like wildfire. And that's what you're experiencing. What you're experiencing is somewhere along the line, somebody had the courage to say, hey, you know what's happening? That You know that form that Richard Pryor and George Carlin and, and Robert Klein and all those people are doing, and Eddie Murphy, you know that form? I want to work in that form. And they got on stage and they did it. And it's revolutionary. And that's why it spreads like wildfire. Look what happened. Look what's happening in India. And there's a backlash to it. 
you know, comics going to prison and stuff like that because of, so, you know, that's a really good sign as, as to how significantly it's spread is they start putting you in jail for it. You know, thing, man, a person getting up, speaking their mind in a lot of parts of this world is a radical, radical act. Well, I think it was yeah. Bill Hicks who said the uh, stand-up comedy is the last bastion of free speech. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, and, and, uh, defending itself right and left yeah yeah I, I just recently just found out today and i'm very shocked because if my mother god rest her soul was alive she'd be calling on the cancel culture is ridiculous pepe le pew, pepe I, le always, pew? Even when I, kid, I thought that even when i was a kid i would watch those old cartoons and i would think how's this guy gonna not get in trouble because <laughs> <laughs> he's french <laughs> Because he's French, yeah. You know, it's not being yeah. like even like there was this documentary on Netflix, and it's I think it's called Interrogation, and it's about uh, the guy who was the in charge of IMF. Uh, his initials are DSK. And oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Strauss Kahn. Strauss Kahn. Dominique Strauss Kahn. Dominique yeah. Strauss Kahn. Great documentary. Great documentary. And if you watch that documentary, which I, I think you must have, uh, Jules, you need to see this. It's quite powerful because there was a very interesting bit where I think one or two of his friends were defending him by saying, this is the French way. What are you talking about? The French about? way, yeah. You know, yeah. this, this is uh, th what you call in America harassment. We call romance, you know, what... Right. Right, right. So, yeah. so it's not so it's not such a stereotype. I mean, if anything, Pepe Le Pew should just be renamed to, you know, Pepe Strauss Kahn. <laughs> Pepe Strauss Kahn. <laughs> that's that's really funny. I mean, mm -hmm. I think I'm gonna have to find some Pepe Le cartoons to start dubbing them. <laughs> the IMF figures come here, moo, 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 moo. <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> I, I can't believe that, you know, we're just getting to, like, I think there's a danger because, like, I know for a fact that comedians get into trouble left, right, and center now. Like, the people that are, it's kind of funny because you mentioned at the beginning Michael Moore, and in Michael Moore's film Bowling for Columbine, when Marilyn Manson goes on the record of saying, you know, the president's dropping bombs on another country, yet I'm the bad guy because I sing a couple of rock and roll songs. I can I can see how it's easy to paint me as the villain, you know. So it's like mm. when when there's some arbitrary draconian. Because I remember the last time you and I spoke in Edinburgh about something serious, and I always remember these words where you and I were talking about how you saw or you could see in America, the rift becoming between state and federal, the rift between state and federal growing. Mm -hmm. And that was, mm -hmm. in, that was in 2006. And, you know, when you see what was happening in Capitol Hill, uh, you know, the whole world saw what happened in Capitol Hill, you know, mm -hmm. it, and now you just see the governor of Texas turn around and said, yeah, we're open. Texas is open for business, masks off mm -hmm. and all, you know? Yeah, well, as it turns out, the U.S. Civil War never ended. It's just been a, uh, they just spent 150 years regrouping. <laughs> yeah, 
and getting on on various social media platforms but you do live in interesting times in an interesting part of the world I mean, don't, don't we all don't we all it does feel kind of like a make or break time doesn't it it kind of feels like look this is either all gonna all go to shit or it's gonna work itself out there's no in between here it feels like that i don't know i don't know let's just hope for the best and at least at the very least let's laugh our way into the apocalypse paul we usually have this part dedicated at the end of the show for our guests which is shameless plug shameless self-promotion but in your case i feel like the entire episode has been a callback to all your milestones that you've been uh, working on and but is there something in particular that you'd like our listeners when this episode goes live which if you'll allow me a couple of seconds to consult the oracle my diary your episode will be going live on the 19th of april around the 20th of april so 420 international stoners day you'd be happy with that <laughs> nice i like that uh well Hitler's uh, birthday as well. Sometime in, uh, yeah, I know that, right? Uh, <laughs> sometime in um, uh, July, early July, I'm going to say early July-ish. Yeah. Go and check out Andy Andrist's Last Shot. Um, just do a Google search for it and we'll find out what platforms it's on there. Uh, I, I think it'll actually probably be on YouTube. Uh, Andy Andrist's Last Shot. Go and check that out. Uh, I directed and produced that. Um, and uh, as soon as the uh, Andy Andrus sexual abuse comedy <laughs> comes out, I'll let you guys know. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm working on, on more projects where I'm, I'm not out in front so much right now. So I don't have a whole lot to promote in terms of like, come and see me at the Chuckle Hut or anything. If you've got, uh, I, I assume, I presume that you're project with Andy about the abuse it's got a working title hasn't got an actual title but if you want to use yeah. that I must have been an 11 in quotation marks as the title by all <laughs> means are you giving me permission for that okay I'm, I'll keep that I'm giving you permission because like I think <laughs> laughter is definitely the best you know ironically call back to Robin Williams you know in the comedy store I don't you must have been there in Piccadilly Circus oh, yeah. And you know when you're coming down the entrance and you see all these photographs of all the comedians, yeah. that the largest picture there is that of the late Robin Williams. And underneath yeah. his well, and underneath yeah. his photograph, there's a plaque where it's engraved, "Laughter extends your life by five minutes." Uh huh. It's good advice for life. Well, Paul, your your work and your magic and your your stand-up comedy without a safety net or a set list, ironic. I mean, like everything you've done has brought joy to the world of others. So, I mean, uh, you're very kind. Thank you. Could you, please the world, my, could you please speak at my memorial? I would happily speak at your memorial. Okay, thanks. If you allow me thanks. to sing at your memorial, amazing. You, you sing away. I will sing yeah. Amazing Grace and Chava Nagila, even though you're not Jewish, or maybe there is. Some... Yeah, well, I'm not having nothing, nothing religious at my funeral, so <laughs> at my memorial. Nothing religious. I just want it to all be about comedy. That's my religion, baby. I'll sing Make Them Laugh from Singing in the Rain. There you go. That'll work. That'll work. 
Make them laugh, make them laugh. Paul Provenza, I'm you in. made everyone laugh. Um, <laughs> hey, Jules, you still there? I'm still is. here. I'm okay, letting you guys I, I, reminisce and discuss. <laughs> I'm just, have uh, we been? Yeah, I'm just. Uh, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to say goodbye because I do have a life to lead. No, we know. Uh, we know. Contrary, we know. contrary to popular belief, um, it was lovely meeting you, Jules. Safe, fantastic catching up with you and hanging out. Let's do it again soon. Definitely. Hopefully definitely. First one of these days. That was Paul Provenza on Safeable Candles, the show with no name, with Julia Felix, who is with us from Free Space International. If Julia would like to just give Paul the rundown on what Free Space International is. Free Space International is a grassroots organization I started to offer supportive services at no cost to artists through the pandemic. So anything that's going to help you manage your career, anything that's going to help you manage your finances, get through whatever this hard time is, just kind of like some assistance working through the upheaval that that is. Um, and then we're working on designing oh. for the industry, specifically comedy related as well. Oh, cool. Thank you for doing that. Yeah, so, I'm trying. So, so we're here. We exist for anyone that we can help navigate through that. You know, it's a phone call. It's it's no costs. You know, to discuss what you're working really on. Great. You know, the that's conversation. Really you. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that you're doing that. That's really great. Because you know what, we got to take care of ourselves, and we got to take care of each other. That's all it boils down to. Yeah, well, we have to, we have to. And if we, I think that if we can all rely on each other a little bit right now, and if we can all find some relief in discussing those, you know, roadblocks that we're hitting, whatever they are, then we're going to be able to weather this storm a little bit better. I never <laughs> thought that the words of Jerry Springer years later would become the mantra. <laughs> Take care of yourselves <laughs> and each other. Peace be upon you, namaste, yeah. and all that jazz.